We're going to be starting in verse number 15 tonight here in just a few minutes. I know we have a lot of kids tonight with that, but I understand they get rowdy and rambunctious at times. I have a little three-year-old over there that probably will as well. Revelation chapter 11. So the past you know, week or two, we've been looking at kind of a, a parenthesis, if you will, in the study of Revelation. It's kind of a pause as we continue looking at some of these judgments. We've looked at the seal judgments and many of the trumpet judgments and the seventh trumpet judgment as we ended last time had just sounded. We're still kind of in that parenthesis time. And remember, and I say this almost every week, but I want you to remember that a lot of the events that are given to us from John are not necessarily in chronological order. Even some of the events tonight that we'll look at, there's a lot of debate and um, speculation on what the timeline is of some of these events as, as we look at the war in heaven. Uh, there's a lot, I've, you know, I can look at three or four different commentaries and honestly they can say three or four different things. And the, the most important thing, what I've tried to do with this series is it's not so much speculation and let's try to try to dive deep into the speculation of it all because we could be here for months just speculating what some of these things John wants to give us. The most important thing we're trying to look at and get is an understanding of our job as a Christian. Now, if there are people here that are lost or people watching online that are lost, most importantly, I want them to understand what it means to be saved. But as the Christian, we don't have to fear the end because we have a hope in Jesus Christ. We have a living hope, and I'm thankful for that living hope. And we'll look at some things tonight, and as we continue looking at some of these judgments, they, as I've said before, they, they can seem scary. They can seem downright terrifying. But remember where our hope lies. Our hope lies in Jesus Christ. And it, it just blows my mind thinking of the people that are going to be here at the end times during Revelation, when Revelation truly comes to earth, and yet the ones that still refuse to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, that choose to reject Him. And as I mentioned last week, kind of an application in closing, the point that I think we need to understand, again, is that we have a gospel mission. And our mission is to tell the lost, to, to try to do the best we can to encourage a lost and dying world so that they don't have to endure and go through some of these events. No one should ever wish it upon anyone, especially an enemy or a friend. You should never wish any of these things upon anyone. So we have to do a better job of telling people and encouraging people and witnessing to people and sharing the gospel with people. And it's, it's been something heavy on my heart for some time, you know, um, as we've changed our, our vision statement here to make it more gospel-centric. I hope and pray that, again, like anything, it's not just a saying for you. It's not just something that you say and you don't actually live. I want us to live the gospel, to be so much about the gospel that we can't help but tell other people about Jesus Christ in any area of life. And the thing is, now kind of definitely going offhand tonight, but the thing is God has given us a mission field within our homes first and foremost, but also the places we work and the people that we see. And we can't always leave it up to someone else. It's very easy to think, well, someone else will do it. That's why we have missionaries come in. That's why we have church planners come in. It's, it's their job to go reach them. Well, God has specifically called them to an area, but he has called all of his children to reach the world, to reach the lost. And with that quick note, I just, again, want to continue to encourage you to, as we uh, come together here in a few weeks for uh, the, the time of giving for our mission strips, you know, 
One thing, I, I, I hate trying to ask people to give money. I really do. It's one of the things that I despise probably most about being a pastor is trying to coerce people to give. Really, even more than just praying, I think you should pray, but I want you to just do it, honestly. I want you to just give. You know, one of the things that I was just at a ministry summit this week, and you know, one of the guys was asking a question to, to a pastor of a very large church, and, and the answer kind of surprised him. You know, how, how do you get people to do certain things? And he's like, well, you just have to ask them. <laughs> he's like, well, thanks a lot. I appreciate the help. But then he went on to, to explain, and a lot of times as pastors, you know, we try to go around the subject. And sometimes if, if we have, as a pastor, if, if God has put this on our heart and we've prayed about this, I believe this is what God wants us to do. So, yeah, I think you should pray about maybe what you should give, but really this is something that you should be a part of. Because the reality is not all of us are going to be able to go on mission trips. Some of us may never be able to go on mission trips for one reason or another. But I really want to encourage you to, when we really take up these offerings here in the coming weeks, to, to give. And give out of a heart of joy, of love, of service, of gratitude uh, towards, towards people that, that need to hear. And really, it's going to be an opportunity for us to continue to share the gospel. On that note, if you have your phone, make sure you have it on silent. Uh, that would be great. That's for myself because my phone just went off. All right. Now let's get into the lesson at hand. Revelation chapter 11, verse number 15. Let's go ahead and just throw that up there on the screen, guys. I think I have it. The Bible says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are come, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God. Now, what we are about to witness in the coming chapters is the seventh trumpet judgment. And as we said with all the judgments, the seventh is really the beginning of the next series. At the end of the seals, the seventh seal was the beginning of the seven trumpets. And the, at the end of the seven trumpet judgment is the opening of the vial or the bowl judgments, which again, each of them have gotten progressively worse and worse. And I've heard, it, again, it said that sometimes before it can get better, it has to get worse. You think about even in our country, like, well, it's, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Yes, but even at the end times, you know, whether we're living in the end times or not, I mean, it's definitely closer than when Jesus left this earth 2,000 years ago. But whether it's, you know, another five minutes or another 500 years, we don't know, but it is going to continue to get worse and worse. And we have to realize that. And even what we'll see in our study of Revelation, it's going to continue to get worse and worse as we'll unfold some of these events tonight. But the first thing we need to look at is this, the testimony of the elders, the testimony of the elders, the seventh trumpet has sounded in verse number 16. It says in the four and 20, we've already talked about these uh, back in, I think, chapter four, chapter three or four or five. Actually, it's chapter 4 and 5. And the 4 and 20 elders, the 24 elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshiped God. We see this, really, this is a central theme every time the view shifts back to heaven, it seems like. People are gathered around the throne room of God, worshiping God. Verse 17, saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee Thy great power and hast reigned and the nations were angry and thy wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets and the saints and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. 
And the temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of, the, of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Again, there is so much to unpack in just these verses. But really, for sake of time with this series, we're not going to just dive so deep into each verse, but more of an overview. And in this testimony of the elders, here's what we see. Since the end of Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, the world and really Christians in heaven have been waiting for this third woe to arrive. Because this third woe it ushers in the very, very end, as I've said before. It's the end of the end times. It ushers in the seven bowl judgments that we'll cover in chapter 16. And in verse number 15, what we see is this. We see an announcement of victory. An announcement of victory. You see, this is what Christians have been waiting for for all eternity. Victory, finally. And it's really that prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done. All of these voices, these great voices, were probably the choirs of heaven. The great announcement is that of the kingdom. And John uses the singular because, you know, when he talked about the beast and being under the control of there. But this world belongs to who? Anybody? Jesus. This world belongs to Jesus Christ. So it's very important to understand that. He gives this announcement of victory in verse number 15 that it's all his, it's all Christ. Verse number 16 through 18, what we see is this, an acclamation of praise. We find the redeemed once more falling on their faces in a posture of praise and worship. These verses are the songs of the elders that they sing of praise to Christ. And honestly, this, this should be something that we should do. Not just when we get to heaven, you know, it's like, well, when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll do all these things. This should be something we should do on a consistent basis. Just fall down in praise and adoration and worship to our Savior for what he has done. And it, it, it convicts me when I think about this because there's a lot of times when I don't truly praise Jesus. When I don't truly praise the Father. When I don't truly praise the one who is the owner of all, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, all of those other things. I don't truly praise him for who he is. I complain to him a lot, but I don't truly praise him. It kind of goes back with the lesson on Sunday, right? Resetting our voice to what? Praise. You know, as David said in there in Psalm chapter 34, you know, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be out of my mouth. And I, I don't want you to answer this, but even since Sunday, those that heard that message how many of you since Sunday have been praising God at all times? Don't raise your hand. But you should. It should just be coming out of our mouth. But a lot of times, what do we do? We get sidetracked on the distractions, on things that, not saying they don't matter. Things in this earth matter. Trust me. And it's hard to not get sidetracked. It, trust me. It, it's very hard to not get sidetracked on things. It's very hard to, to not lose focus. But really, once we do, we should immediately then shift back focus to God. God, help me. Help me through this difficulty, this turmoil, this circumstance that I'm facing. And let me just praise you as David did. And that's what we see here, this acclamation of praise in verse 18 reflects Psalm chapter 2, another psalm. It's, an, it's a declaration of God's righteous judgment and wrath on a defiant and rebellious world. Their song was threefold, that Christ reigns supremely, righteously, and graciously. Then in verse number 19, we see this as we close out chapter 11 and move into chapter 12. We see an assurance of God's faithfulness. An assurance of God's faithfulness. This chapter opened with the temple on earth, and now we see the temple in heaven. The focus of attention is on the ark of God, the symbol 
of God's presence with his people. And as we come to chapter 12, what we're going to discover in the next two chapters, chapter 12 and 13, is what many refer to as the terrible trio. I'm not talking about your in-laws or anything like that. Uh, The terrible trio is the dragon, the false Christ, or the antichrist, and the false prophet. Those are the things that we're going to be unpacking in in the weeks to come. And really, the stage is now set. We have really gotten up to the midpoint of the tribulation here at the end of chapter 11, and now we're going forward, and everything is going to go on a much more rapid pace. And the stage is set for this dramatic appearance of the beast, who is Satan. It's masterpiece. The beast is not Noah. I know he's kind of a beast at times, but the beast is the false Christ who is going to control the world. You know, Satan is the great enemy of the church, and he fights against God and his people by accusing saints on this earth. Now, I just want to make a quick side note, and I want to read this. Satan is not just the essence of evil. He is a real living creature. You know, there are a lot of even Christians that don't really believe in Satan. They think he's something made up to kind of scare children into obeying or we have a misinterpretation of who he really is. The research of Christian pollster George Barna indicates that nearly 60% of Americans say that Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. That's not true. Barna's research also indicates that 45% of born-again Christians deny Satan's existence. And I don't know how you could be saved and deny his existence. And I'm not going to take a poll tonight, but there might be some even in here that Well, I mean, I believe that there is evil in the world, but I don't know about a real, literal person. You know, I have a hard time with that one. You know, I'm not saying it's not a true assessment of Christians, but seriously, how can you claim to be a Christian, believe in a literal God, and not believe in a literal hell, a literal devil, all of those things that God gives us in his word? The reality is there's a lot of people and a lot of Christians in general that they believe the Bible, but they don't even believe the first 12 chapters of it. If you don't believe the first 12 chapters of it, you're missing out on all of it. First 12 chapters are really foundational for who we are in Christ and really that God created the world. There's a lot of Christians that have fallen prey to this evolutionary theory, and I'm not going on that tonight, but that's why we have to be very careful even what our kids are hearing and learning in their schools. Evolution is a man-made concept. Creation is God-made, God-centered. We have to believe that God, God spoke the world into existence. That God created the world. That God created the earth in a literal seven days. And again, it's so hard to fathom, but that's who our God is. That's the God that we serve. So I know what some of the books in our, in our schools teach And again, parents and grandparents, you have to be careful. This is why it's important to not necessarily have your your kids in church, but to know what you believe so that you can then refute the things that are false in the world and give them the truth of God's word. And again, there's probably even some in here that probably don't believe everything about the Bible. "Eh, It's just fancy, you know, it's just fairy tales and this and that. Well, it's not. It's not just stories. These are literal things that happened that took place that are given to us to apply to our lives. And what we see as we get into chapter 12, that Christ 
has overcome the world. The Bible says back in John chapter 16, verse 33, uh, I'm, I'm trying to quote off memory, but basically be of good cheer. Jesus told his disciples, I have overcome the world. You know, that's a verse that we need to take to heart. That no matter what evil is going on right now, take heart that Jesus Christ has already overcome it. And we're going to unpack that a little bit tonight. And because he has overcome it, he gives victory to his people. And the first thing we see in chapter 12 is this. God sent a Savior just as he promised. God sent a Savior just as he promised. Now, in, in the notes tonight, if you're taking notes, it's kind of an interesting title. How many typically think of Christmas when you think of Revelation? Anybody? Why? I mean, that's like the Christmas story through and through, right? Why are you laughing, Mia? You're weird. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we typically don't think of the Christmas story in Revelation. You know, at the end of this year when we celebrate Christmas, you're, you're, you're not expecting me to be like, all right, guys, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 12. We're going to unpack the Christmas story today. You don't think of it that way, but... What this is, is an apocalyptic Christmas story. And I, I'm going to explain what I'm talking about. I want you to listen to what Eugene Peterson says of this text. He says, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. You see, Peterson is right. We have to understand that there is no baby in a manger, no shepherds rejoicing or wise men bringing gifts and worshiping. But there are angels, but a lot of them aren't singing. Rather, they're engaged in a heavenly war of eschatological, eschatological proportions. So how is this Christmas? Well, let me explain. Because in this Christmas story, there is a beautifully clothed woman, a male child who, <clears throat> who is the son, and a great fiery red dragon who stands ready to devour, eat the son who is going to shepherd all nations. Again, it's not the original story, but again, I, I will unpack it as we go through it tonight. This is an apocalyptic Christmas story, if you will. And in Revelation chapter 12, here's what we have. It's, it's basically in part, or in summary, it's the grand redemptive story of the entire Bible. It's pretty cool when you study this, and we'll, we'll study it tonight. So let's go ahead and jump into it. God sent a Savior just as he promised, chapter 12, verse number 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. So John, again, sees visions. There are two visions. The first vision, the first wonder that he saw was a woman. The second wonder, just quickly, just to throw it out there so you can take notes and get that down. Then listen, the second wonder he saw was the dragon. So first wonder was a woman. The second wonder he saw was a dragon. Let me read the verses. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, I'm not going to unpack what I believe this to be. We're going to get to that in a couple chapters. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven horns and, or seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Again, we'll get to this a little bit later in another message. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. And did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the women, woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness where God hath a place prepared of God that she should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days, three and a half years. Now, the story of Christmas actually does not begin in Bethlehem. Do you guys realize that? The story of Christmas begins far, 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 far before that. It begins in a garden called Eden. You see, when Adam and Eve yielded to temptation, God made a promise to send a Savior. Turn there quickly. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We'll just read that one verse. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You see, it's very easy to think that the Christmas story began in Bethlehem, but it technically didn't. Sin has come into the world because of Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God's commands. They did what they wanted to do, kind of like many of us do. Verse number 15, the Bible says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise its heel. What this verse is basically saying, I'll interpret it a better way. It says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed, your offspring, and her seed. You see, this promise was a promise made in the presence of Adam and Eve, and it's called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, would be further developed in God's promise of Abraham and his promise to David when they had the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Of that, I will make a great nation out of you and I will send a savior into the world to redeem the world of her sins. And now finally, what we are seeing is the fulfillment of these promises on full display. And this first wonder, this first vision of the woman Again, there's a lot of speculation quickly as to who this woman's identity is. It's occurred throughout the ages. The Catholic Church believes her to be Mary. Yet many others believe this to be Israel. You know, I think we can rightly take the view that she is the righteous remnant of Israel, God's people. Israel is often referred to as the woman in the Old Testament. She's pregnant with child. This child is referring to none other than, anybody know? Jesus. This child is Jesus Christ. The 12 stars symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. In verse number 2 of chapter 12, her pregnancy denotes two realities. First, it's this. It symbolizes the fact that Jesus the Messiah came through Israel. I think many of us know that. We understand that. We've been in church. Second thing, it, it symbolizes the fact that Jesus' second coming must again originate with Israel, with the Jew. That is God's chosen people. And Fortunately, he chose to save the whole world, not just one group. But Israel has agonizingly suffered through the centuries and waited uh, with all the sufferings, longing for the Messiah to come. And God has already fulfilled that promise by sending Jesus, and he's going to refulfill it here at the end. Quickly, the second wonder, and again, all of this will make sense in a few minutes, I hope. But the second wonder is a dragon in verses 3 through 6. John sees this great dragon who in verse number nine, just look there quickly, it says, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent. Now, that's a really another nickname, if you will, for Satan, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. The dragon has seven heads, 10 horns, seven crowns, The heads represents mountains and the horns represent kings. And again, more in chapter 13 and 17, so just stay tuned for that. 
But verse 4, look at verse 4. It says, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. So a third part, a third. And did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, and was ready to be delivered, for to devour the child as soon as it was born. So verse 4 tells us that this dragon, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whatever other name you want to give to him, he swept away a third part of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. This speaks of the control that Satan has over one-third of the angels who rebelled against God. So it wasn't just Satan who rebelled. Satan took with him an army, an army of a third of all the created angels. Now, just to, we don't know the exact number of how many angels are created, but if you study Scripture, Scripture leads you to believe that there are probably millions of angels. So let's just, for easy math here, let's just say there are three million angels that God created. How many angels did Satan take, if that were to be true? One. One million. That's, again, there could be a lot more, but just for easy math and reference sake. That's a lot. One third. Now, originally, Satan was an angel in heaven. He was Lucifer. He was an archangel, and there were three archangels, Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. Each had their own little regiment that they were in control of, but he fell and thought that he was better than God and thought that he should be above God. And it's, it's when we think about it sometimes, at least myself, I'm like, how stupid could you be? But we're no different because we think we know best. And we don't listen to God, the creator of all things. And, and not in the same fashion that I'm actually openly rebelling against you and taking people with me. We do the same thing with God on a daily basis. But what we're going to see in the Great Tribulation is that Satan, again, seeks to destroy all that God stands for because he is so opposite of what God stands for. Isaiah 6, I believe it is, talks about how he was trying to ascend. I, I, it talks about his pride. I will ascend. I will be great. I will be like the Most High. But how can you be like the Most High when you were just a created being? You can't. All the power that he had was given to him by his Father, God. Now, during the tribulation, again, quickly, Satan is going to seek to destroy Israel and devour her child because in his mind, if there is no Israel, then there can be no return of Christ. So if there's no Israel, Christ can't return, that means Satan's going to rule. It's a great plan in his mind. But here's, here's the reality, folks. He's tried this once before, hasn't he? Actually, he has many times. He tried this with King Herod. How'd that turn out? Herod, how'd that turn out? You died. Thank you. <laughs> I know, I was just seeing if he's paying attention. <laughs> but let me, let me just give a quick, quick reference of history. This has happened all throughout history where Satan has tried to get in and destroy the seed. Cain, he slew his brother Abel. Pharaoh tried to kill all the Jewish male infants. Ahaliah murdered all the royal seed of the house of Judah. Haman developed a plot to genocide all of the Jews. Even wicked King Herod tried. But all of these tries have resulted in one common theme. You know what it is? Failure. Failure. Throughout history, and there's more references that I could give, but throughout history, Satan has tried and tried and tried his best 
to defeat the woman, <laughs> to defeat the offspring. Because if he can destroy the offspring, if he can destroy Israel, the seed, then he's going to rule. Everything's going to be under his control and his dominion. David Platt said about this, he said, The birth of Christ on that day in Bethlehem inaugurated the death of this ancient serpent, just as it had been promised back in Genesis 3. The birth of Christ declared the death of the ancient serpent. The death of Christ then defanged the adversary. You see, even when Jesus was born, what did Herod do? Hey, kill all of the babies under, what, two years old or something like that? Three years old? Kill all of the babies. Kill all of the male babies. So even then, Satan was trying to work his power. But again, God has a plan. And God is greater than Satan. We have to understand that. We have to realize that. I think many of us do, but I think it's important to be reminded of it. That every attempt that Satan has ever had has always ended in failure. And right there, as a Christian, I mean, there, there's so much more that we're going to talk about tonight. But right there, that should, that should help us to have more hope. That, again, we give him more power than he deserves, don't we? A lot more power. But again, everything that he throws at us, not that it's not difficult, but what's it matter when you have someone that's already defeated him? All right, well, I guess nobody's excited, but anyway, um, seriously, man, it, oh, mm. all right, verse six, let's just keep going. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Again, this is kind of referencing three and a half years, tribulation is seven years. So what we see is a woman in the wilderness. Here the wilderness symbolizes a place of protection and provision just as God has done throughout the ages with Israel. He has cared for her following the Exodus. And he has specifically prepared a place for 1,260 days, three and, three and a half years. And this is a place of spiritual refuge because he has always looked out for his people in the past, the present, and the future. And really the, the connotation here is not even just for Israel, it's for Christians as well. He has always looked out for us in the past and the present and the future. So take hope. Let's continue on, verse number 7 through 12, since no one else is excited. God accomplished a salvation that is certain. God accomplished a salvation that is certain. Look at verse number 7. And there was a war in heaven. So this mighty war breaks out in heaven. Imagine this scene. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels. We should, you know, replicate that tonight, should we? No, we won't. It just, it would get way out of hand, as it already has sometimes. So we see this great war. Just, just try to picture it in your mind. And I know many of us have great imagination. So picture this great war in heaven where Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon, Satan, and his angels. Verse number eight, and prevailed not. Who prevailed not? Well, Satan, the dragon. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. Now, just quickly, the... The time frame of this war is not specified. Again, I've read so many commentaries on this, and several of them give so many different opinions. Dogmatism is really unwarranted here, but the results are certain in this cosmic conflict. Now, just a quick little FYI. This is a representation of good versus evil. Remember, God created both Michael and Lucifer. And honestly, Lucifer, Satan, the dragon, the serpent, the old serpent, whatever, He's always wanted to be God's equal. 
but does God have an equal? No, God has no equal. And really, if you want to put it in perspective, the only equal to Satan is Michael, the archangel. Not these Michaels, but Michael, the archangel. That's the only equal to Satan because they are both created beings. Now, Michael's name, what does Michael's name mean? Who is likened to the Lord or one like God. Is that what your name means too? Okay, just making sure. You never know. In Spanish, it might mean something different. I, I don't know. Tasha, we don't need that. His parents thought he was, okay? Shh, shut your mouth. Exactly. But Michael, the archangel, name means one like God, and Michael seems to be the chief angel opposite of this fallen angel. Michael is the guardian and protector of God's people, has always been. Satan had access to heaven. Remember the story of Job where he entered into heaven in the presence of God? Again, we don't know the exact timetable here. Maybe it's the midpoint of the tribulation. Maybe it was after Calvary. We don't know. But all we know is that, again, verse number eight, this mighty war that is raging in heaven between Michael, his angels, and Satan, the dragon, the old serpent, his angels, this mighty war, who prevails? Michael prevails. And then finally, verse number eight, neither was their place found anymore. Who is the there? Who is the there? What? The demons. Yeah, the bad angels. Great way to put it. The bad angels, the demons, Satan and his demons, his minions. Though, So now they no longer, again, when, whenever this timetable is, they no longer have access to God, to heaven. Satan is a defeated foe. That is a truth that we must understand. Let's continue on. Verse number nine. And the great dragon was cast out, out of heaven. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. So in verse number 12, 10 through 12, here's what we see. John hears a loud voice proclaiming four glorious truths. Salvation has come of strength. The kingdom of God has come, power and authority. And the truth is that we have victory, not because Michael defeated Lucifer. We have victory because of the blood of the lamb. Verse number 11. And they overcame him. Why? How? By the blood of the lamb. So when Calvary occurred, and you know, I'm sure Satan thought he won yet again. I'm going to win. Everything's going to happen. But on that third day, whoo! That was basically pronouncing it's over. You have no hope. So imagine that. If you're in a fight and you're in a struggle and you know that you have no hope, sometimes you give up. But a lot of times, what do you do? You keep fighting even harder. I'm going down. I'm doing everything I can. And that's what we're going to see. That's what Satan, the dragon, has decided to do. He's, he's, he's going to do everything he can in his power to turn everyone against God if he can. Verse number 12, therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell on the earth. But there's, there's a pronouncement of, of joy for all those that are in heaven, but for earth, woe. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath. Think of the wrath that he has because he has been defeated. He knows he's been defeated. 
because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Again, could be very well the midpoint of the tribulation, but this could have taken place right after Jesus rose from the grave. We don't know. And I'm not trying to cast a lot of speculation one way or another, but all we know is what the scripture says that once this event has taken place, Satan knows his time is limited. And he's going to do everything in his power to destroy as many as he can. The first 13 through 17, as we close, what we see is this, that God will provide for his servants in the war against Satan. God will provide for his servants in the war against Satan. Whether or not you realize this or not, Christmas was a declaration of war. It was a declaration of war that God had promised back in Genesis 3.15. And Calvary was that decisive battle where the outcome of the war was settled once and for all. There are no questions of how the war is going to end. But our enemy fights until the bitter end. Now that he's been cast out of heaven for good, he makes war with the woman. But it doesn't matter because he's already failed stopping the child. And there's no way he can stop the son of man. Verse 13 and when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman, which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle. Now, we don't need to take this literally. It's not like all, you know, all of Israel, the remnant, or all Christians are going to load up on a giant 747 in the sky. That's not what it's talking about, people, okay? So sometimes it's not, figure, or it's not literal, it's figurative. So the woman was given the wings of, of an eagle. And this is really, it's, a, it's simply a picture of God's providential protection. The wings of a great eagle represents the swift escape from persecution. The eagle in many instances in the Bible is symbolic of God. And during this time, God is going to protect Israel, his remnant from Satan. Satan can't get to Israel despite his best efforts. And remember that God has always had a remnant. Everything you study in scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, he's always had a remnant. And the timeline, again, of her protection is a specified three and a half years. And she is said to be in a place of presence of the servants. Verse number 14, and to the women were given two wings of a great eagle, and she might fly into the wilderness, into her place. Now, some believe it to be the wilderness of Petra. Whether it is or not, we don't know. Some also believe, some commentaries that I hold to high regard, they believe that maybe God is just going to scatter the remnant throughout the, throughout the earth. But whatever he does, whether he puts them in a specific place or scatters them, what we know is that they will be protected by him. And then what it says, she shall be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So a time is a year. Times is two years when you study it out. And half a time is half a year. So three and a half years. She's going to be protected from the face of the serpent. Verse number 15. We're almost done. The imagery here is pretty awesome. And the serpent cast out his mouth, water as a flood. Again, John is using a lot of figurative language. Not necessarily saying that all of a sudden this dragon just like, and like, you know, it's going to flood the earth with water. But the serpent cast out his mouth, water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. So really what, what we know here is that he is trying to destroy her. He is trying again. Yet he fails. Verse number 16. And the earth helped the woman. Why do you think the earth helped the woman? Because the earth belongs to the Lord. And all that is in the earth belongs to the Lord. And the earth helped the woman. 
And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Maybe it's figured, maybe it's a literal thing, we don't know. But regardless, we know that God is protecting his people. You know, really, this is kind of a likening to the army of pharaohs. Remember the army of Pharaoh when they were coming after Israel? And what happened when, when the, the Israelites were passing through the Red Sea on dry ground and all of a sudden the water just engulfed them? You know, it's kind of a representative similar to that. Exodus fifteen twelve, where it says, You're, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. But the dragon yet again fails and his fury grows even greater. Verse number 17, I'll close with this. And the dragon was wroth. That, I know it's, sometimes it's hard to understand some of this old English. You know what that means? It means angry. He was angry. He was ticked off. Like some of you are probably right now. Um, he was ticked off. He was mad. He was angry. He was frustrated. He was furious with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, this is all of those that are left. Again, the dragon yet again fails, but he's going to make war with everyone that is a child of God, whether Israel or whether a, uh, of the church age, whoever is left on this earth that is a child of God, that it has the, the seal of God, he's going to make war with. And really what this passage is, again, in summary, it's the grand redemptive story of the Bible. That sin entered into the world through the old serpent. And because of that, there was need of a Savior. Genesis 3.15. The Savior came and throughout history, the serpent tried to strike down the seed. Tried to strike it down over and over and over again. And yet every time he failed. And then finally, that child, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem. And then 33 years later, he goes to Calvary dies a cruel death, but he didn't stay dead. He rose victoriously. And really, as I said earlier, it's, it's a Christmas story unlike any other because it's still a redemptive story. You see, this apocalyptic Christmas story, get this down, it's one of salvation and protection. That Jesus is the Savior and he will protect his sheep. Always has, always will. And some people question this. Well, he hasn't protected me from all the trouble. Well, some of the trouble is our own fault. But he has always protected us. Always has, always will. And whether or not we die and we think, well, he didn't protect us from death. He has because he's offered us something greater. Something better that he has prepared for us. And here's the key truth as we close it all out with. God has always been faithful to keep his promises. And through Christ, he will bring to completion the final salvation of his people, despite Satan's opposition. Again, this passage, amazing passage, in summary, tells us the grand redemptive story of the Bible. It's a panorama of salvation through history. That no matter what evil is coming and trying to befall upon man. Jesus Christ is the Savior. And he is the protector of his people. And what he starts, he will complete. All right, next week we're going to dive even deeper into it, so just stay tuned and be ready for that. All right, let's pray.